This is day six of our autumn seven-day session, 4th of November, 2022. And we're going to take up a case today from the Hikigan Roku, the Blue Cliff Record. It's number 86. Ummon's Everyone Has His Own Light. And here's the case. Ummon said, Everybody has their own light. Though when you try to see it, you cannot. Everything is darkness. What is everybody's light? Later, he answered himself, saying, The temple storeroom, the tower gateway. He also said, A precious thing isn't as good as nothing. We'll we'll start off with a bit of um, background on Mon Mon. His Chinese name is Yun Min, and his dates are... 862 to 949. And we'll be reading from The Golden Age of Zen by John Wu, an old classic. Chan masters, like other men, may divide it into two types. Some are slow breathers, others are fast breathers. Of the five houses of Chan, Guishan, Tungshan, and Fa Yen belong to the slow breathers, while Linji and Yunmen belong to the fast breathers. Of these two, Linji, it's Rinzai, breathes fast enough, but Yunmen breathes faster still. Linji's way is like the Blitzkrieg. He kills his foes in the heat of the battle. He utters shouts under fire. When the lion roars, all the animals take cover. No one can encounter him without his head being chopped off by him. It makes no difference whether you are a Buddha, a Bodhisattva, or a patriarch. Linji will not spare you if he should chance to encounter you. So long as you bear a title or occupy any position... Linji will send out his true person of no title to kill you off in a split second. So terrible. <clears throat> so terrible is Linji, but more terrible is Yunmen. Linji only kills those whom he happens to encounter. Yunmen's massacre is universal. He does away with all people even before they were born. <laughs> To him, the true person of no title is already at a second moon, therefore a phantom not worth the trouble of killing. Yunmen seldom, if ever, resorts to shouts or beatings. Like a sorcerer, he kills by cursing. His tongue is inconceivably venomous, and, what makes the case worse, he is the most eloquent of the Chan masters. So, we're encountering one of the great individuals of um, the Golden Age of Zen, Tang Dynasty Chan. Yun Men is a radical iconoclast. In one of his sermons to his assembly, he related the legend that the Buddha, immediately after his birth, with one hand pointing to heaven and the other pointing to earth, 
walked around in seven steps, looked at the four quarters and declared, Above the heavens, below the heavens, I alone am the honoured one. After relating this story, Yunmin said, If I were a witness at this scene, I would have knocked him to death at a single stroke and given his flesh to dogs for food. This would have been some contribution to the peace and harmony of the world. Vimalakirti fared no better with him. One day, beating the drum, he announced, Vimalakirti's realm of wonderful joy is shattered to pieces. Bowl in hand, he is now heading towards a city in Hunan to beg for some rice gruel to eat. It seems that Yunmen had no respect for any person. He once quoted these words, He who hears the Tao in the morning can afford to die in the evening. Everybody knows that it was Confucius who uttered these words. Probably the most most revered sage in in China, up there with Lao Tzu. It was Confucius who uttered these words, but Yunmen did not even mention his name, but merely commented airily, if even a worldly man could have felt like that, how much more must we monks feel about the one thing necessary to us? Nor was Yunmen more polite with himself than with others. For instance, he said to his assembly, Even if I could utter a wise word by the hearing of which you attain immediate enlightenment, it would still be like throwing ordure on your heads. This is to say that even if the master had done all that he could could have done to, and that was expected of him, and even if his words had been instrumental to their awakening, still the end can never justify the means. To Yunmen, any speech, however legitimate from a worldly point of view, is out of place in regard to the eternal Tao. He seems to be obsessed with the primary insight of Lao Tzu. The Tao that can be expressed in words is not the eternal Tao. As Yunman was interested in nothing else than the eternal Tao, what use could he have have for mere words? That is why, whenever he had to make a conference, he always apologizes for speaking at all, give a lecture, in other words. The beginning of his very first sermon as the abbot of Lingshu Monastery is typical. Do not say that I am deceiving you today by means of words. The fact is that I am put under the necessity of speaking before you and therefore sowing seeds of confusion in your mind. If a true seer should see what I am doing, what a laughing stock I would be in his eyes. But now there is no escape from it. He's, he's speaking here of the dilemma of being a Zen teacher and knowing that words deceive, but nevertheless having to use them.
another Zen master, I don't remember who, but he said that um, speaking of the Dharma was like having to drink soup with rat turds in it. The great paradox about Yunmin is that on the one hand he had an extraordinary gift of eloquence, while on the other hand he had a phobia for the word, as if every word were an intruder into the sacred ground of the inexpressible Tao. What attention that must have created in his mind. Fortunately, we hit upon a happy solution of this tension with another paradox. The man who has realized his self can stand unharmed in the midst of flames. This is Yun-men. So even if he talks all day, in reality nothing cleaves to his lips and teeth, for he has actually not spoken a single word. Likewise, though he wears clothes and takes his meals every day, actually he has not touched a single grain of rice nor put on a single thread of silk. The keenness of his mind reached an agonizing degree. He seemed to be sensitive to every motion of his own mind, and his self-knowledge enabled him to discern the thoughts and feelings of others. From the same source of sensitivity have sprung many a piercing insight into the secrets of spiritual life. For instance, he said, each of us carries a light within him, but when it is looked at, it is turned into darkness. This is the koan that we're looking at today. It's slightly phrased slightly differently. Wu comments, here is a profound insight whose authenticity is beyond question. And we'll explore it a little. Yun-men was conscious that his way was the narrow way. He appealed only to the highly intelligent. His house has been characterized by all students of Chan as steep and abrupt. In fact, they say that, that the reason why the Yun-men line died out was because his, his teaching was so steep. Of the of the five lineages, uh, we just have have two remaining, Linji and Saodong, Runzai and Soto. He himself wrote a poem descriptive of the style of his Chan. Steep is the mountain of mountain of Yunmen, rising straight upward, leaving the white clouds down below. Its streams, dashing and eddying about, allow no fish to linger around. The moment you step into my door, I already know what kind of ideas you have brought with you. What's the use of raising the dust long settled in an old track? Not so many people would, would choose this steep mountain path to Yunmen's teaching where you just go 
straight up the mountain. Rather, they would prefer uh, a zigzag path that, that um, goes slower, goes, takes it easier. A teaching that, that um, dashed everything into to smithereens, nothing to hold on to. You didn't have to have psychic powers to be able to discern what kind of ideas people coming to the temple were bringing with them. If you have a, a reasonably empty mind, then then you you read people's body language as they approach. Such, then, is the style and aura of the man into whose life and teaching we are going to peep with an undaunted spirit. Undaunted spirit, We are told that one day Yunmen put his hands into the mouth of a wooden lion and cried at the top of his voice, Help! Help! I am bitten to death! Now we are going to put our hands into Yunmen's mouth, but there is no reason to fear, even if we should meet with the same terrible experience of being bitten by a lion, we could still survive as he did. Did I think this little piece of the story about his um, playing with what sounds like a toy lion here gives us a sense also of his playfulness. No doubt he was... was doing this in order to um, help his students um, not get stuck in, 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 into shoulds and oughts, but to play with the practice, to experiment. We'll skip around in the rest of some of this this biographical material. There's quite a lot of it. Uh, We'll just pick out little bits and pieces. So he was um, probably born into a very poor family um, as he was placed when he was still a boy um, in a uh, vineyard temple. As was, uh, we were just reading the other day, Yasutani Roshi. So this was one, one way that um, very poor Buddhist families could uh, cope with the number of mouths they had to feed. He was noted for his exceptional intelligence and especially for his natural gift of eloquence. And as soon as he was old enough, he had his head shaved and he was ordained. He continued at this place, um, uh, serving as attendant to his master, his Vinaya master, um, and went deeply into this school, which is um, focuses on the the 
monastic rules and upholding them in, in the community. It says all his learning, however, did not satisfy his deeper needs. He felt that it did not throw any light on the most pro- vital problem of his own self. Hence he went to see the Chan master Mu Zhao, the disciple of Huang Bo, hoping for the necessary instructions. But as soon as Mu Zhao saw him, he slammed the door in his face. Mu Zhao was living as a hermit in a, in a, um, a little hut. When he knocked at the door, Mu Zhao asked from inside, Who are you? After he had told him his name, Mu Zhao said, What do you want? And Yunman replied, I am not yet enlightened on the vital problem of my own self, and I have come to beg for your instructions. At this, Mu Zhao opened the door a little way, but after a quick look at him, shut it again. You can see he's maybe starting to think that there's some good material out there on the doorstep. In the following two days, Yunmen knocked and met with the same experience. On the third day, as soon as the master opened the door, Yunmen squeezed in, pushed him. The master grabbed him, saying, Speak! Speak! And Yunmen fumbled for something to say, and the master pushed him out saying, you good for nothing, and slammed the door. And then he slammed the door so hard that it actually um, broke one of your men's feet. And um, he, from that time on, he walked with a limp. This was his his, um, initiation into Chan, into Zen. Mujau now recognizing his sincerity and his his metal um, told him to go and see Shui Feng, another great tongue master, uh, Seppo in Japanese. So he he traveled to uh, the village at the bottom of the mountain where Shui Feng was and it was probably like a, a, a stepping off point for people to climb the mountain, the steep Yunmen mountain, um, to go and uh, visit the temple. And so he, he met another monk down in the, in the base camp, so to speak, and um, asked him if he would, was going up the mountain that day. And this other monk said that he was. So Yunmen hatched a kind of little pot, plot asking this monk whether he would be willing to take a message to the abbot but to present it as, as, as his own. And the monk consented to do so. Bad idea. <laughs> a little uh, ingenuous, perhaps. Um, Yunmin said, after your arrival at the monastery up there, as soon as you see the abbot entering the hall and the assembly gathered together, go forward at once, clasp your hands, and standing erect before him, say, Poor old man, why does he not take off the kang from around his neck? The monk did exactly as he had been told to do. Maybe he was in it for the fun. 
But Shui Feng sensed immediately that these words were not his own. Coming from his seat, he grabbed him firmly, saying, Speak! Speak! As the poor monk knew not what to say, Shui Feng pushed him away and said, Those words are not yours. At first, he still insisted that they were his own words, but the relentless master called for his attendants to come with ropes and sticks. Frightened out of his wits, the monk confessed that they were not his words. Um, just a, a footnote about these ropes and sticks. Um, even right up until the, the 20th century, we know from the, the biography of the great uh, Chan master, uh, um, Empty Cloud, um, that there was corporal punishment in the Chinese monasteries because um, Shu Yun himself was um, subjected to a beating when he he had fallen into a river and nearly drowned and, and was therefore late for an assignment he had at a temple. That doesn't mean we should have corporal punishment in our temple at, at all. In fact, uh, um, read recently uh, in a book by Andy Ferguson where he goes to visit places where he thinks Bodhidharma might have been or, or taught, and he talks to one abbot at one of these, of these Chinese temples um, who says a little bit about the corporal punishment, and he says, no, we don't do that here now, and we wouldn't because... You have to be ready for that kind of treatment, and it's not in most cases it's not appropriate. He's talking here actually not so much about corporal punishment, but about blows and, and shouts as being a teaching method. They can be helpful um, for people who are already deeply collected in themselves. They they just they just kind of um, act as a as a, a goad for their for their deepening of their practice, but in probably ninety nine percent of cases, this kind of stuff can be damaging and is not is not um, a useful teaching method. In fact, it can be abuse. So we need to keep this in mind when he, reading these old stories that the, the shouts and blows that we do see are um, skillful means and maybe they weren't always skillful, we don't know it all depends on the, on the motives of the, of the person using these methods and on the um, uh, mature, spiritual maturity of the person receiving them So anyway, back to our story. So um, this this um, in, innocent monk is, sees the ropes and sticks and um, then confesses. They are not my words. There was a monk from Chikyang I met at the village who taught me to speak thus. Then the abbot said to his community, Go, 
all of you, to the village below, to greet the one destined to be the spiritual guide of 500 persons and invite him to come. What was it that, that made him um, say these words on the basis of this, these, um, what seems like a, a, an insult to, the, to him from this monk at the, at the foot of the mountain? Poor old man, why does he not take off the kang from his neck? A kang is a um, Chinese... Uh, instrument of punishment a little bit like the stocks in medieval times in in European countries and um, so you you have your head inside some kind of frame and you're locked locked into it and this image of the Kang is sometimes used to refer to the responsibility that a uh, a monk or a nun takes on when agreeing to be the abbot of a big monastery. The Iron Kang. Not very appealing, <laughs> if that's what it's going to be like, but it's pointing to the the huge responsibility that it is to, to take on the um, job of uh, teaching and, and administering in a, in a big community. We can be very grateful to those who do take on this responsibility. But in this in this case, the um, young man is is um, seems to be saying. Um, seems to be insulting the the, the current abbot, but. Um, perhaps there's also something else in, in here that he's saying that the that the the abbot the current abbot reads as being ah here's my my spiritual successor who's coming and sometimes these masters would have uh, a premonition they would they would have a dream or or a vision that the, their successor was on his way or her way. And so, and thus, the 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 um, Seppo's response: um, Go all of you to the village below and greet the one destined to be the spiritual guide of five hundred persons, and invite him to come. The next day, Yunmun came up to the monastery. On seeing him, the abbot said, How could you arrive at your present state? Yunmun said nothing, but just lowered his head. Right from that moment, he saw eye to eye with the master. He stayed several years with Shui Feng, under whose guidance he delved more and more deeply into the profundities of Chan until the master transmitted to him the Dharma seal. 
So there is there is a sense in this story of um, of karmic affinity that that these two were were had a deep affinity and were were recognizing that right from the start. Next, next, um, John Wu um, relates the many <coughs> other <coughs> um, masters that Yun Men went to visit and encountered, had encounters with. And then there was a, another, another place where the abbot had kept the seat of the, the um, leadership uh, where, where the leader of the assembly would sit and uh, again uh, young men arrived and, and was welcomed as the, as the uh, to fill this vacancy that had long been, been held at this other temple. After the demise of a certain master, the uh, prince of Guang ordered Yunmen to be the abbot of a temple called Lingshu. At his at his inauguration, the inauguration, the prince came in person to attend the meeting, saying, "Your humble disciple begs for your instruction." And Yunmen said, "Before your eyes lies no other road." To Yunmen, there was only one road, not many roads. But what is the one road he had in mind? In the, the answer to this crucial question lies the touchstone of all his philosophy. For Yunmen, as for, as for Matsu, the one thing necessary is the realization of this one, this one, who is none other than everybody's own self. This is not only the one goal, but also the one road, for the simple reason that there is no road to lead to the self outside of itself. And this is this is um, an aspect of the, the the case we're going to have a look at today. This one who is your true self is complete in itself and lacking nothing. Time and time again, Yunmen asked his assembly, are you lacking anything? Time and again, he reminded them that the only one thing, that only one thing is essential, that all other things are of no concern to them, that this vital matter they must rely on, in this vital matter they must rely on themselves, for no one else can take their place. All sermons were like the signs of a, a mute person trying to hint at what is in his mind, and the following discourse is as typical as any. Here it is. 
my duty compels me to attempt the impossible. Even in telling you to look directly into yourself and to be unconcerned about other things, I am already burying, burying the real thing under verbiage. If you proceed from there and set out on a quest of words and sentences, sentences cudgeling your brains over their logical meanings, working out a thousand possibilities and ten thousand subtle distinctions, and creating endless quote, questions and debates, all that you will gain is a glib tongue. While at the same time, getting farther and farther away from the Tao, with no rest to your wandering. If this thing could really be found in words, are there not enough words in the three vehicles and the twelve divisions of scriptures? Why should there be a special transmission outside the scripture? And if you could get at it by studying the various interpretations and learned commentaries on such terms as potentiality and intelligence, then how is it that the, state, the saints of the ten stages who could expound the Dharma as resourcefully as the clouds and rain should still have incurred the reproach that they only saw the self-nature vaguely as through a veil of gauze? From this we can know that to follow the intentions and vagaries of your mind is to be separated from yourself as far as earth from sky. But if you have really found your true self, then you can pass through fire without being burned, speak a whole day without really moving your lips and teeth, and without having really uttered a single word, wear your clothes and take your meal every day without really touching a single grain of rice or a single thread of silk. Even this talk is but a decoration on the door of our house. The important thing is your experiential realization of this state. Even this talk is, is the same. A mere decoration on the door of our house. Perhaps in an effort to, to transcend words, uh, Yunmin developed a kind of uh, teaching response um, that was came to be called his his one word pass. Um, this was just one of, one of his his teaching methods, but it's it's one that um, we we can adm admire and uh, enjoy. And w what this involved was somebody would ask him a question, and he would reply with a single character answer. So just a couple of examples. Question, what is the right Dharma I? That's E-Y-E. -E. Answer, all-knowing. Question, how do you see the wonderful coincidence between the chick tapping inside its shell and the hens pecking from outside? This was an image that was used to um, depict the, the relationship between the student um, liberating itself, her, him or herself, um, 
while the, the teacher helps from the outside. So the student is the chick inside the egg and the teacher is like the, the mother hen on the outside helping the, the uh, chick to find its way out of the, the, the prison of, of self. So how do you see the wonderful coincidence between the chick tapping inside its shell and the hens picking from the outside? Answer, echo. Question, what is the one road of Yonmen? Answer, personal experience. What is the Tao? Question, what is the Tao? Answer, Go. There's, there's much more, but we'll we'll uh, stop with the biographical material at this point, and. Um, just finish by saying that we don't. I couldn't find any information about his uh, the mo- manner of his death. Uh, we, we did have a date, but uh, not not any any um, last words that I could see, given given the reference works we have. So anyway, anyway, now turning to our case. Everybody has their own light. Though when you try to see it, you cannot. Everything is darkness. What is everybody's light? Later he answered himself, saying, The temple storeroom, the tower gateway. He also said, A precious thing isn't as good as nothing. So... Christian, many of us has have in one form or another. What is this light? This this light that we all possess, and why why if if it exists, can't I see it? How can I how can I get around this? How can I break through and experience this light? Well, answering the the why part. Um, we have the, the the words from the Avatamska Sutra of the Buddha, which we've already mentioned uh, in these Teshos, the Sishin. Wonder of wonders, all beings are Buddhas, endowed with wisdom and compassion and virtue, lacking nothing. But because people's minds are turned upside down by delusive thinking, they fail to perceive this. So this is this is the the for what it's worth the answer to the why question. Our minds are turned upside down by delusive thinking, and so we fail to see our Buddha nature. Turned upside down by delusive thinking. The the essence of it is the conviction that we have that we're separate. That we 
standing over here and the world is out there. We're stuck in the delusion of separation. As to as to um, how how we can respond to this this um, predicament, um, the Buddha gives a hint in in what he says in his statement. He starts, "Wonder of wonders." See, it's as if he he cried. And all, all of his statement, you could say, is, is contained within that, that ah, that wonder of wonders. To, to bring a sense of wonder to our practice. A sense of, of curiosity. Heard a snippet of somebody on speaking on the radio back in New Zealand um, before I left, um, and it was it was a writer of a book. Um, his name was David Robson, and um, he he published a book uh, called Staying Curious, and he'd done all this d- different kinds of um, uh, social science research on on. Um, Different kinds of um, attitudes and, and how they affected um, people's people's work and research and so forth. And um, he had this sort of slogan that curiosity and or wonder can supercharge the mind. When people are curious, then it it actually can increase increase their levels of patience. Because somebody who's curious will will appreciate the process. And patience is so important in practice, and so needs to be developed, given that we are, uh, come from cultures where where um, immediate gratification is is the norm, or at least as an expectation. Apparently, curious people are more willing to explore contrary opinions and engage with people who are different from them. Children are naturally curious, and uh, often it gets gets knocked out of them one way or another, and. Um, this this negatively affects infect, affects their their learning. So to bring curiosity and um, wonderment or wonder to our um, work with the koan. Wonder of wonders. 
It's the, the outcome of, of the, the Buddha's search, but also necessarily something that was there all from the very beginning of it. We could say that um, wonder is actually an essential part of being human. It's this it's the the ability to um, to keep learning I read a passage um, from a little book on cosmology, the one that I mentioned in a couple of earlier Taishos by Brian Swim and Mary Evelyn Tucker, and it's called Wonder and the Stars. In this process of becoming human, we are searching for ongoing guidance. He's, he's talking about um, how we human beings have kind of lost our way and um, this has led to our destroying the biosphere and, and how we need to find our way out of this, this um, dead end, <coughs> literally. We are searching for ongoing guidance. We will need to know what we can rely on. So many of our former certainties are gone now or are in the process of changing in order to move into the future, we need to know what will be there for us. First of all, there are the stars. We can count on their presence, their immense fiery light. In the depths of night, they are a reassurance that we can find our way. They stun us with their beauty, drawing us into wonder. Remember, it was a star, or a planet actually, that prompted the Buddha's great awakening. Planet Venus, the morning star. They stun us with their beauty, drawing us into wonder. The sense of wonder is one of our most valuable guides on this ongoing journey into our future as full human beings. Wonder is a gateway through which the universe floods in and takes up residence within us. Consider the stars. They shine down on earth for four and a half billion years. Then these new creatures emerged, those, these humans. What was different about them is that they are amazed every time they behold the stars. Their amazement aspires works of art and science. Hundreds of thousands of years later, humans discovered that it was these stars that forged the elements of their bodies. Most of what we're made up of come out of exploding supernovae. By dwelling in a world of wonder, Humans were led to realize that they were children of the stars, something intuited by early myths and uncovered by modern science. They came to understand that everything in the universe then forms a huge interconnected family, what we can call all my relations. And I think this refers to a, a Native American gratitude um, ritual from this area. Wonder is not just another emotion. It is rather an opening into the heart of the universe. 
Wonder is the pathway into what it means to be human, to taste the lusciousness of sun-ripened fruit, to endure the bleak agonies of heartbreak, to exult over the majesty of existence. The universe's energies penetrate us and awaken us. We could add here the, um, the temple gate and the storeroom and this list of things that we can be enlightened by. The universe's energies penetrate us and awaken us. Through each moment of wonder, no matter how small, we participate in the entrance of primal energies into our lives. However insignificant we may feel with respect to the age and size of the universe, we are, even so, beings in whom the universe shivers in wonder at itself. By following this wonder, we can discover the ongoing story of the universe, the story that we tell, but a story that is also telling us. So we are the light itself. But if we try to reflect on ourselves, we objectify ourselves, we're divided. It's, it's really only in a state of profound wonder uh, where body and mind are, are unified in this sense of open absorption that we can experience our own subjectivity. It's in our zazen that this is possible. We, all we really need to do is stop trying to grasp and pin down our own light, but to approach, approach it with this curiosity, this wonder, rather, rather than a desire to possess. So much human suffering comes out of people fulfilling their desire to possess. It comes out of objectifying not only ourselves, but also the people in our lives, especially people who are different. All kinds of objectification has happened in our world that is so destructive. Objectification of nature, of women, of people of colour, indigenous people, people of different sexualities, and so the list goes on. We lose sight of the subjectivity of each and every one of us. Everything is darkness, he says, about trying to, to see this, this light of ours. You can understand this in two ways, the darkness of, of, the, of separation or just being prepared and being willing to tolerate the darkness of not knowing, not being able to pin down, not being able to um, put in a box our reality. Umon asks, what is everybody's light? No one in the assembly says anything, and so he patiently, grandmotherly, replies for the uh, assembly. The temple storeroom, the tower gateway, um, demonstrating the meaning of this is one of, one of the points of the koan. But we can say, we can observe that 
these these two things, this, the temple gate and the storeroom, were probably just steps away from the Dharma Hall where this uh, teaching was happening. And they're not particularly gram- glamorous parts of the the temple. Important, uh, actually essential to the temple's functioning, but um, not usually uh, seen with as being particularly valuable. One version has the temple storeroom and the corridor, or the, or the, you know, the temple gateway and the corridor, sort of pointing to these things as more like con- connective tissue of the temple. Then there's a pause and, and Umon says, a precious thing is not as good as nothing. There are usually lots of precious things in temples, Buddha figures, scrolls, artwork, highly cherished things. But in at the temple or in our own lives, um, there may be things things that we we especially appreciate because we can be they they shine for us. We we are more aware of the light, our own light, uh, in these these artworks. But Umon's reminding us that even the finest and the best things are not as good as nothing. Uh, all things are compounded, all things are conditioned, and therefore will eventually fall apart. We can't rely on them. There's suffering built in there. And even beyond just the things of the temple, we can cherish enlightenment, or we can cherish the, the stillness and, and, and silence of Sishin. But if we attach to these things, then we turn them into objects. They become things and, and then are subject to dissolution. So wonder, to approach things with wonder, is to approach them without grasping without assuming anything, without expecting anything, just questioning, just holding in attention. We'll stop now and recite the four vows. <laughs> 